Open your Bibles with me this evening for the last time for a short period of time to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I would like to close this series of sermons by having us read again the passage of Scripture with which I opened it. You know that I have a personal and natural interest in economics and finance, money, banking, and interest. But I did not preach this series of sermons for any personal interest, or I would have done that about two years ago. Most of this material has been collecting over time, and I could have taught this two years ago. Even though I felt you needed it two years ago, we covered some other things first. We have covered a lot of ground in this church since I've been your pastor. We have dealt with things as the doctrine of Scripture, where we went Sunday by Sunday through the nature of Scripture, the inspiration, the preservation, the identification, how to study it, how to teach it, who should teach it, the ministry, the church, Bible prophecy, the church judgment, the nature of God, Calvinism, Arminianism, the truth, salvation, baptism. But what I have tried to do in this series of sermons is move us farther ahead than knowing that Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God, that He died for our sins and there's a home in heaven waiting for us when we die. I believe all those things. I love all those things. Those are great aspects of truth to be remembered, to be taught, to rejoice in. But they're not how you get sanctified, except in a legal sense. Practical sanctification is based on what you do. And that's why I, in recent months, have been preaching on what you need to do. And that's why I preached this series of sermons. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is dealing with the will of God. How many of you have ever asked one another, asked yourself, asked your spouse, I wonder what the will of God is for me? No more guessing, friends. I'm going to tell you what the word of what the will of God is for you. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, I read, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. That, and he begins to describe what the will of God is for his saints. That you avoid fornication, in verse 3 and 4. That you don't go beyond and defraud your brother in any matter, in verse 6. That you love one another in verse 9 as God himself has taught us. And then these words in verses 11 and 12. And that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. I am not reading these words again to fill up time. I'm reading these words again, that if, by reading them again, you will hear them as the words of God. This is the will of God for your lives. That you would study to be quiet and to do your own business, to work with your own hands, for with the end result being, providing things honest toward all the men outside this church that are looking at you, and that you'll have lack of nothing. I want the very best for every member in this congregation, those present, those living at a distance. I want you financially successful. Why? Because God wants you that way. Number one, and I want you to please God. I've told you, I believe in this series of sermons, that I have a vested interest in everything I do for you. 
You know, I have an ulterior motive every time I preach to you. And it's not for your direct benefit. It's for the benefit of the captain who called me to be his soldier. And that's that he's pleased by a congregation of people being more pleasing to him. Second of all, I want you to be happy and financially successful. But number one, I want it for my master. Just as if I was running a department for the chairman of a board at some company, I would want the finest department in that organization for the praise of that chairman of the board. I am working for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I want this church to please him. That's why I have preached this series of sermons. And I want you to enjoy the benefits of putting some of these things into practice. They work. God said they worked. I know they work. And if you'll put them into practice, they'll work for you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we bring this study of Bible economics or studying to be quiet, to do our own business, to work with our own hands, that we may provide things honest toward them that are without and may have lack of nothing. As we bring it to a close, O Lord, Bless this effort that the words that I have spoken, the verses we have studied, might rest with these people and most of all they might put them into practice. First of all, O Lord, for Thy honor and glory that here in this community there might be a group of Thy saints who stand apart from the rest of the world and even apart from those that claim to be Thy saints because they practice godliness in their financial matters. O Lord, I do it for thy name's sake, and I am confident that with that motive you shall bless this effort. I trust it now to thee in the name of Jesus Christ for the salvation of his church from slothfulness and wastefulness. Amen. Let me review briefly what we've covered in the last several weeks. I introduced the subject of Bible economics to you with this passage and I told you the first thing we need to learn is that no matter what else you may hear or what you could read from success books or how to get rich books, God's Word is the final authority. You will be able to read things where rich men will tell you things differently than what I've taught you. I've given you the Word of God. Those men are rich having used means different than what God said because God's judgment is upon them. That's a point I made to you. I hope you'll remember it. I won't be up here every Sunday reminding you of this series, and it hurts. I'm going to let it go for a while, publicly. I'll get to privately in just a minute. And that hurts. You, it's, it's like a parent sitting a child down and discussing one of the important issues of life with them and realizing that if you bring it up again shortly, you're going to be considered a nuisance, a bother, that you're just bugging them. So I won't be doing it again publicly, and that, that bothers me. But I want to review briefly some of these things so that you'll remember. You are going to encounter people and books and ideas different from what I've taught you. It's a bunch of error. I'll say it nicely. It's a bunch of error. 
God's Word stands. Remember Psalm 119, 128, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. I hope whenever you encounter something that contradicts what I've taught you, you'll hate it because you'll know that it is a false way. I criticized you and me and the rest of most Christians for getting shamed by a cult like the Mormons who practice such financial wisdom in their own families that put most Christian families to shame. They're not Christian. They're anti-Christian families. We need to be an example in our community for financial success God's way. I stress to you the importance of Bible economics and how much it's dealt with in Scripture. It's dealt with a lot, isn't it? Jesus dealt with it. I mean, most of his parables dealt with money matters because it's one of the most practical areas of your life. You will spend more time trying to earn a buck than you'll ever spend in church. I mean, they're not even good close to each other. You spend more time trying to earn a buck than anything else you do. I gave you the basis of Bible economics that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. That the abilities you have are God-given. And even when you use your abilities to the best of your ability, what you get from the application of that ability is still God's blessing. I mean, a lion has a great deal of strength, doesn't it, does it not? And yet in the Word of God, it describes the lions as obtaining their meat from God. Abraham had 318 trained servants that I referred to this morning, and yet God blessed them to get back the spoil from the kings who carried Abraham's nephew captive. God has given different measures of ability. Some of you are five-talent Christians. Some of you are two-talent Christians, and some of you are one-talent Christians. God has made you to differ one from another. And if you ever get haughty with the fact that you differ, you are dealing in sin, the sin of pride. You will not be able to measure up with everyone else, or you may exceed everyone else in the congregation. You keep in mind that God made you to differ. You keep this one thing in mind. God's looking for 100% ROI. ROI is return on investment. The man who had five talents came back with ten. That's 100% ROI. The man with two talents came back with four. That's 100% ROI. The man who had one talent decided he'd go and bury it. He was a conservative investor. He was. He said he was afraid of the challenge that this hard man would lay on him. You make sure that you double what you've got. And I, I'm strictly applying Matthew 25 to you. You just make sure that whatever God's given you, you are using it to the utmost. Some of you I will expect a great deal more than others. But make sure that you thank God for everything you have. I did not teach you the principles of Bible economics, which is a section of this study that you can study in your outlines, which I've prepared for you. That deals with things like the medium of exchange. God teaches in His Word what the proper medium of exchange is. It's a unit of monetary metal weighed in the balances, which is a very interesting subject. We can deal with that some other time. It's not important enough to be dealt with in here. It's just past. It's just covered in passing in Scripture. The judgments of Bible economics. Do you know what God says to those who don't want to listen to His advice? Let him that is ignorant 
acquire great wisdom? Let him that is ignorant be ignorant still. If you don't want to listen to what I've taught, and if you want to go out and continue the way you have been and be a failure like you have been, that's okay. Go ahead and do it. But as I conclude this series of sermons, you won't be a member of this congregation as you do that. Financial gain is not always a blessing. You look at the rich around you and realize that it's God's judgment just leaving them in their foolishness as He gives them prosperity simply to keep them comfortable and happy so they won't look anywhere else. I gave you the objectives of Bible economics. I think those are very important. The easiest thing to do is to get into a rut after this series ends and because you're paying all your bills and you have a little loose change in your pocket and your checking account has $200 in it to think that you're doing just fine. Remember the five objectives. You need to be able to support the man who teaches you the Word of God so he can live comfortably enough to be able to dedicate his time to teaching you the Word of God. That was objective one. Objective two, and all of these are contained in the Scriptures. We've already studied them. A good man will leave an inheritance for his children and his children's children. That is not $200 in the checking account. That is not loose change in the pocket. That is not getting your bills paid on time. It's a lot more than that. Good men will have some money set aside for the day of adversity when the car goes out, when the hot water heater blows up, when you have to move and you can't find anything as cheap as you have been renting. A wise man will have that money laid aside. A wise man is going to have a fund set aside to help the poor saints. When a member of this congregation is under an act of God and is in need of financial aid, he'll have a fund set aside to help that person. If two years from now, all of these things were to happen at once to you, well, how could they happen at once if you were to die? You need to leave an inheritance. Let's say the other three happened first, and then you died. Will you be on your way to meeting those objectives? Would you be able to contribute liberally to help a poor saint in need? Would you be able to support yourself if the car went out? The kids needed surgery, some type of surgery that wasn't covered by insurance, and the hot water heater went out all at once. And then you died. Would you have an inheritance? Forty years from now, without your life insurance, because it'll be too expensive for you to afford it then, will you have an inheritance for your children's children? We need to start working now. If you do not meet the objectives I have just given you, you are not a good man. You are not meeting God's requirements for sanctification. When Paul said that he was teaching them to study so that they would have lack of nothing, those are the four things he didn't want them to be lacking in. I taught you the rules of Bible economics. Now, to help you remember the rules of Bible economics... I have prepared on some nice paper for you to frame, put on your refrigerator, put on your desk, put on the bathroom mirror, put across from the porcelain pony, wherever in your house you want to put it. Here is a page with the ten rules of Bible economics and their appropriate verses for you to learn and read once in a while to remember. I'm not going to be able to do it to everyone all the time. But I want you to remember these rules and just look down through them 
And when you see rule three and it says pay yourself second, and you realize it's been six months since I got a dime from all my effort, here I am just like the pastor said, I'm paying everyone else second. I have been paying the Lord, but I've been spending all my money. I asked my wife just this week to make sure she understood the concept of paying yourself second. Do you realize that every dime you spend in expenses is paying someone else before yourself? When you pay the bank for your house and Winn-Dixie for your groceries and the Exxon station for your gasoline, you're paying them before yourself. Don't you love yourselves, people? Don't you want to pay yourselves a little bit? But when you're paying all your money out in expenditures, you're paying others before yourself. I'm trying to look out for good old number one. That's you. Pay yourself second. See, I want those rules around if they'll help you. Remember to pay yourself second. I'm interested in you. I want you to have something to show for your labor. I don't want you to be 50 years old and have me ask you, what do you have, Jim Edwards, to show for 30 years of work? And he says, I've got a balance sheet that breaks even. Well, bless your heart, big boy. That's a real accomplishment to have a balance sheet that breaks even. I want you to have some savings where he can say, I've got three years of work just waiting to be spent someday by me, my children, and my children's children. Isn't that wonderful? Do you know what our great-great-great-grandchildren would enjoy if we practiced this and taught our children to practice it? It has an effect of uh, building. Would you be able to make more money if your grandfather and your father had given you an inheritance so that you could have bought your own business or have done something bigger than what you're doing now? I have this for you, the ten rules for financial success that you need to remember and to put into practice. Now, I don't give up easily. Brother Newell helped me on this one. He had his computer go to work and he put them on three-by-five cards. So I have the ten rules of Bible economics or for financial success on three-by-five cards you can put in your purse, you can put in your pocket, you can put in that wallet so that every time you open it, friends, there is your second conscience staring you in the face. Shame, shame, shame. Let me tell you a story. We started this with a story about Sam Jones, I want to tell a story about Aaron Edwards. About a year and a half ago, I sat down with the Edwards family and went through some of this material with them privately. And they began working on a budget, and they're one of the families that I commended in general without naming them when I commended Sam Jones. They have done some great things financially from where they were two years ago. And I mean that. Well, Aaron and her mother were out one day in the store and Aaron asked her mother for something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but she asked her mother for a quarter so that she could buy a particular thing. And Marlene said to her, no, you can't have a quarter right now to buy that. And Aaron looked up at Marlene with all the innocence that Aaron can muster and said, why? Won't Pastor Crosby let you have any money? <laughs> That is a true story. That brought me to my knees. Won't Pastor Crosby let you have any money? I want you all to have money. 
and I want you to pay yourself. There are three by five cards, and I thank Newell for preparing them that you can stick in your pocket to memorize the two primary verses for each rule. Most of the verses are short, they're catchy, they're, they're proverbs. You know, the Chinese learn proverbs that are written by Confucius. Can't we learn proverbs that are written by Solomon and inspired by the Holy Ghost? Let's be wise and learn the Word of God. Also on the back table this evening, after the service, will be eight pages of documentation for what I've taught you in the 11 sermons ending tonight with everything I've covered and some things that I wasn't able to cover due to time. We covered the ten rules. Let's go through them together and I want to hear you say them. Rule number one. Obey God. God. Rule number two. Pay God first. Rule number three. Pay yourself second. Rule number four. Minimize expenses. Minimize expenses. Rule number five. Work hard. Rule number six. Work smart. Rule number seven. Work patiently. Rule number eight. Minimize debt. Minimize debt. Rule number nine. Work honestly. Work honestly. And rule number ten. Manage risk. Manage risk. This morning I preach to you the restrictions on Bible economics, which for some of you, if you forget this morning's sermon, I'll not hold you guilty. You just remember the other nine that came before that and put them into practice. For any of you, though, as time goes on and you put into practice some of these things, as the the entire Christian experience is, it is an experience of not only interpreting Scripture between two extremes, all of script, any verse you raise from the Word of God, I can raise a verse that appears to contradict it. And so it is in the Christian life. Every time you start on a track of righteousness or tack of righteousness, all of a sudden you find that if you go too far on that tack, you know, you're beyond the wind. You've run to an excess and God tells you to come back. And that's what I tried to teach you this morning, that there are some restrictions so that we don't get out of bound in this desire to get ahead financially. I'm limiting that desire to what God wants you to have financially. He didn't say you have to live in a mansion, that all the church members should be residents in Sugar Creek. He didn't say that we all have to drive Cadillacs or Mercedes-Benz. He said that we need those four objectives that I've already mentioned. Bible economics will be enforced in this congregation. A father when he's running his home and he sets down some rules for the benefit of his children, if he doesn't enforce them, what kind of a father is he? He's a worthless father. I mean, what good is it to teach something if you don't enforce it? I will enforce Bible economics in this congregation, not because I'm a dictator, not because I came down here to get power. I mean, I didn't come down here to get power. What power is there in being the pastor of the Greenville Church except the authority of Christ to command you in your lives to conform to what He requires out of you. And I do this as the best friend any of you have. I do this as someone who loves you dearly. And I do this as the ambassador of Christ. But as your overseer, I will, as I have done, but I will do it more, since you are now on notice. Check with your employer when I think it's appropriate. Now, most employers so far were quite surprised. 
They're not, they're not sure how to handle a minister coming in and saying, could I have ten minutes behind a closed door with you? And then start asking them questions about one of their employees. They like it. Once they figure out that you're for real, I mean, I've had some real looks. You know, am I going to sue them? If they say anything, they don't say a word. They just sit there and clam up because they're afraid of getting sued. But after we get going and they understand why I'm there and I tell them exactly why I'm there, they enjoy it greatly to see someone interested in their employees and a church that's trying to give me a better employee. They like that after they get over the initial shock. As your overseer, I will do that. For those of you who run a department or who have people reporting to you, which is few of those that are here, if you had given jobs to several of the people that reported to you, would you not follow up to see if they were doing the job? If you were a manager and you had supervisors working for you, would you not check with the supervisors to make sure the employees were doing their job? Sure you would. Anyone who didn't do that, you would look down on them as a lazy, slothful, poor manager. I'm the same thing. I'm an overseer over the Lord's house. I'm a steward. And I want you to be the best. And I'll do that by checking with your employer to find out if you're being the best that you can be. As your overseer, I'm going to confront you about your financial goals and position. Now, you have two choices when I confront you. You have three. You can claim the Fifth Amendment. You can lie. You can confess. I will be confronting you, though. I'm going to be asking you how you're doing. How much, if you're saving, 10%. If you're not, I'll listen to your explanations as to how you're going to leave an inheritance by saving 2%. I'll listen for a few minutes. But I'm going to be following up with you. Now, God never, nowhere said you have to save 10% of your gross pay. And I'm not going to require 10% of your gross pay. All I'm going to do is try to get you to pay yourself second so that you are getting ahead. Why? Because God does require you to get ahead. Now, does that, do I sound like a bully trying to help people save money for your good? Do you think it is fun going to talk to employers? Do you think it is going to be fun to come to you and know that you haven't saved anything and then ask you if you've saved anything? It reeks, as some people say, of onions. It is no pleasure. It is one part of the job that I had no desire to be a pastor. But I will do it because I want all of you to be successful. And the families in here that have put into practice some of the things I've taught in the last two years thrill my heart. When I see them able to handle adversity and when I hear testimonies like Sam Jones, isn't that wonderful? That's worth it all. See, Sam, I go a lot farther with Sam than what I'm talking about right now. And Sam has done that with me. Sam Jones has been very open with me, which gives me the best opportunity to help him. You go to any financial planner. You call up any financial planner in Greenville and you go to him and say, I want some help. You know what he's going to do? He's going to say, I want some information. He will make you disclose everything. Everything. He will make you disclose your attitudes about spending, about investing. Because unless a financial planner knows your attitude, he can't invest for you. 
Sam has disclosed most everything to me. Monthly, I get a detailed, and Sam, I know you're hearing this, too detailed (laughs) statement of what the man's been doing financially. I mean down to the penny. But it helps me follow up with Sam and look at the results. Have I gone around and told any of you where Sam spends his money? You didn't even know I was getting such a report. Do I ever make fun of Sam? Not really. (laughs) Do I tease Sam a little bit once in a while about some of the things I see him spending some money for? Sure. Sure I do. And that's what you want. You want some, and it doesn't need to be me. If you want someone else to look at some of your information and just bounce it off someone else, do it among yourselves. But it helps to know that if you spend this, you're going to have to record it and someone else is going to see it and they're going to ask you, what in the world did you spend this for? Now, when I was at Michigan National Bank, I was hired to do that. I mean, my name at Michigan National was Little Hitler. I had two nicknames, Rabbit, because at the age of 26, I had four children, and and Little Hitler. Now, I'm not trying to be little Hitler with you. I'm approaching this very, very differently than I did there. I can be a Hitler when it's needed. That's not what I'm doing. Do it among yourselves, but I will be confronting you. If I know you have debts, I'm going to be after you to get those debts paid. You would want me to do that. We all need a kick in the backside once in a while to get to work. That's what we're all for. That's what ministers are for, to provoke to good works. And that's what each of you are for, to provoke to good works. I mean, if all of you are running around provoking each other to get your debts paid and save money, pay God first, pay yourself second, and put into practice everything, this church will be, you know, Amway is going to be coming in here asking if we'll give seminars on financial success. If that is done by everyone. Because, see, the Lord's put us together in a body where every joint can contribute. That's what I read in Ephesians 4. For this church to be perfect, every joint is going to be contributing to what I'm talking about. As your overseer... Now, you know how far a minister could go if he wanted to? As your overseer, we may go to an envelope system of giving. Who would see the envelopes? I would. You know, in most churches, they have an envelope system just for everyone else to see. The Bible justifies an envelope system for the minister to see. How do you, how do you know, Pastor? Am I the overseer? Am I to see everything? You say, but the Bible says not to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Is that all the better verse you can raise? That verse is given so that you're not giving your gifts before men. When in the early church at Jerusalem they gave their gifts, where did they give them? Privately in a box? With their eyes closed during an offering while the organ played? Or did they come and lay them at the apostles' feet? And distribution was made to every man. They came and laid them publicly before the apostles' feet. Now see, there they were giving publicly, but they weren't doing their alms to be seen of men. Christ condemns by saying, Don't let your right hand know what your left hand does about the attitude or the purpose or motive in giving. But the actual practice of giving can be done in a number of ways. I believe all of you can remember Ben Mott saying, 
he'd fellowship any church, no matter how they collected their offering. I mean, they could throw it in the aisles and suck it up with a vacuum cleaner. And he'd fellowship that church. See, the Lord never said how we collect. He just said you better do it the right way, with the right motive and the right attitude. I haven't done that yet. I hope I don't have to do it. But there are ways to tell who is being faithful with the Lord. And if I can't get enough by confrontation, we'll get enough some other way, maybe, if we have to. And I'm simply doing this. Do you know how your barn's going to get filled? To give of your substance, to give the first fruits to the Lord, and if you're not doing it, why don't we do anything? Because we're lazy, we're selfish, and we're sinners. Who helps any of us get over that? Ministers who are faithful and loving enough to beat us once in a while, embarrass us, and provoke us to good works. I, mean, I have been treated that way also, and I'm thankful for it. That is why I still maintain one man affected the same way I was affected by a faithful minister, and I'll consider myself successful. What are the judgments for you not meeting up to some of these goals that I've tried to set for you in these sermons? I may rebuke you publicly. If I find out that you're not meeting your goals, if I talk to your employer and you are a slothful employee in the job and you're holding your job with the skin of your teeth, if I find out you have debts and you took a vacation without paying those debts, you say, you mean I can't take a vacation until they pay your debts? Absolutely. If, absolutely. if you're behind on payments, if you're behind on payments and you take a vacation, you're stealing, friends. Do you understand how that works? If you're behind on payments, you owe everything you can muster to make those payments. Don't go talking about the need for a vacation. If you're not saving at all or getting ahead at all, I will rebuke you publicly. The Bible tells me to do that. It's not fun doing it. It's not fun receiving it. But I'll do it. Paul told Timothy, them that sin... Rebuke before all that others also may fear. I hope that everyone in this congregation who wants can have their turn like Sam Jones. If they want. And make some progress. Now I know that there's about four families in this church right now who have some financial goals for the end of this year. Let me tell you, I'm pulling for you more than I pull for the University of Michigan when it plays Ohio State. I am. I think some of you have set some pretty high goals for the end of the year, and I hope you make it. And it will be wonderful. That will encourage me to no end for preaching this sermon and being your pastor to see obedience. Listen, I don't, you don't need to tell me I, about my preaching. Nothing counts as much as you obeying what I teach. And when you obey, that is an encouragement. Remember when I preached in the ministry and I said the preservation of the ministry? The best way to preserve your minister is to obey what he teaches. If the second judgment that may come your way, if you're losing jobs all the time, or you're slothful, or you're not saving, or you're not paying your bills, I'll rebuke you publicly. The second thing that may happen is you may end up in financial need. And guess what will happen? You won't get any from the church. None at all. Do you know what you'll get? 
some advice to go out and lay in your front yard. And crawl around on the sidewalk on a hot day. And go to the ant, thou sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise. You know, the ant there in Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 deals with two financial problems. One, sluggard, go to the ant, thou sluggard. And two, learn her ways, which is providing her meat in the summer. That means savings. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 is primarily savings. Providing ahead of time what she's going to eat, the ant's going to eat during the winter. If you're being lazy or if you're not saving, don't come to this church for charity. And you all know the practice of this church that charity is given through the pastor's knowledge and information. Last of all, you could be excluded. If someone persists in not putting into practice what I've taught, now I'm not going to measure you by the fact that if you're not a vice president by the time you're 32 years old, you're going to be excluded. Nothing like that. If you're not meeting God's basic objectives of supporting the work of the ministry, of supporting your family and providing for their needs, of saving some money for an inheritance, of having some laid aside to be able to help yourself, it will boil down to this. You will be excluded. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 is a chapter on exclusion that any time anyone has ever dealt with excluding a member, they go to that passage because it's the most explicit passage on separating from a Christian in the whole Bible. And what subject is it, is it dealing with? Heresy? Idolatry? No. Laziness. Laziness. An exclusion will result if people don't put into practice what I've taught. Because if you're not sanctified, you're a stench in God's nostrils. If you're not working to be holy. Listen, friends, God is holy. Therefore, be ye holy, even as your Father which is in heaven is holy. What are some sins worthy of judgment? Not paying your debts is a characteristic of the wicked. What is that? If it's a characteristic of the wicked, then it's called wickedness. If it's wickedness, it could also be known as unrighteousness. Unrighteousness will not be named in this congregation in a public, flagrant, or continual way. Flagrant and continual late payments on debts constitute lying. Remember, you agreed when you got that money to make payments according to a certain pattern. It involves stealing. If you're late in a payment, that payment is that someone else already owns that payment. And if you have what someone else owns, you have stolen. It involves covenant breaking. A loan is a covenant. And if you know how to get money without making a covenant, would you tell me how to do that? You say, well, I never signed any agreement. There's verbal covenants also. When you get money, people assume, understand, or talk about how you're going to pay it back. And if you don't pay it back according to that schedule, you're guilty of very serious crimes the Lord will not have in His church. Losing a job for unfaithfulness, dishonesty, or slothfulness will be judged accordingly. You know what the Lord thinks of those crimes in the book of Proverbs. A sluggardly approach to the meeting of God's required objectives will be judged also. I will make efforts to enforce it. I have done my best to encourage you to be enthusiastic. Listen, I'm not trying to browbeat you now. It's not a terrible ordeal. It's easy if you'll just get to work and do it. 
And it may take some measures on your part of reducing some expenses like the Johnsons are doing in moving simply to lower their housing expense. But it can be done. And you'll be the better off for it. It's not that big of a deal. It's something we can start now and get done. And none of this will even have to be put into practice. But it will be if progress isn't made. Let me deal now with the application of this whole subject. And this will be my concluding summary of group of points. How do we apply what I've tried to teach you? First of all, if you've made past mistakes, is there anyone here that's made a past mistake as measured by what I've taught? Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. God has some words of comfort. Leviticus chapter 26. Let's apply it now. This is going to be the conclusion. What do we do about what we've heard? Leviticus chapter 26, beginning at verse 40. God here is speaking directly to the Israelites when they're in captivity. If he judges them and they're in captivity, here's what they can do. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespasses which they trespassed against me and that also they have walked contrary unto me and that, also, and that I also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember and I will remember the land. God has made a covenant with us in the book of Proverbs. It's as plain as all of us can see. God is holding out promises for us if we'll meet the conditions. Isn't he? Now, you may be putting all of them into practice and still not realizing the gravy yet. You know why? You haven't done what these three verses require. It's going to require you to humble yourself and say before God, I have been a fool. I have wasted my substance. I haven't considered it precious as you taught me. I haven't been as diligent as I should have been. And neither have my fathers been, if it's true of them also. Listen, God will hold you responsible for their sins, but you can confess for their sins. Remember, the Lord visits the iniquities of the fathers unto the children of the third and the fourth generation. If you don't confess their sins for them also, God can hold you responsible and you'll never get ahead. You say, well, I never heard about praying for someone else. I thought that was just something the Catholics did. Who did Job pray for? Did you ever read Job chapter 1? He prayed for his sons and his daughters that in their feasting and partying they wouldn't have sinned and blasphemed God. That was one characteristic of a righteous man. You can confess the sins of your children. Will that spare them completely from God's chastening? No, but it sure will spare you. And it'll take some of the heat off of them. God here requires you to confess all known sins in your family that have resulted in your negligence financially. If your uncircumcised hearts will be humbled and you will accept of the punishment of your iniquity. If you will tell God that the fact that I'm in the dire straits that I am, I'm not ahead financially. I'm 30 years old. My balance sheet's a negative $2,000. It's a disaster. And if I told the congregation, I'd be shamed to ever be seen there again. Accept your punishment. Say, God, I'm worthy of a lot more. I shouldn't even have the job that I've got now to earn it back but I'm going to earn it back. 
What does the Lord say? Then will I remember my covenant. Then those promises will go into force and you can expect God's blessing to be coming in your direction. Don't, don't blame God. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 3. Don't blame God. You know, the expression that covers this point is don't bite the hand that feeds you. God is the one that is going to pull you out of this by you using His means and Him blessing those means. But look at what Proverbs 19.3 says. The foolishness of man perverteth his way. Why aren't you people, or all of you, where you ought to be financially? Because the foolishness of your heart has perverted your way. It's perverted your spending habits, your savings habits, your giving habits. The foolishness of man perverteth his way, and then once he's in that dire straits that God gives him justly, notice what it says. His heart fretteth against the Lord. Who do we blame? Well, the Lord just hasn't blessed me. Well, the Lord just hasn't blessed me. Well, you fool, you're in your trouble because of your own foolishness. Don't fret against the Lord. You fret against the Lord and you're in for serious trouble. Accept the punishment of your iniquity and where you are at. Tell the Lord, I have been a fool. It has been the perversion of my own heart that I have not paid myself second. I mean, the pastor made it so simple, Lord. Why do I want to pay everyone else and ignore myself? That is how simple it is if you don't save. That's what a man told William Johnson. Remember, he told you in his testimony. A man came to him and said, if you don't save part of what you're earning, you're the biggest fool in Bristol. Was that man scriptural? As scriptural as could be. That's just what it says. It's the foolishness of man that perverts his way. I mean, he'd spend everything he makes and more. Don't fret against the Lord. Accept the punishment for your iniquity and let's go forward. Remember that there will not be quick results from God's methods necessarily. Don't plan by December 31st to be walking in here with some new diamond hanging around your wife's neck. I know that you'd like to do that for her, but it may not happen. It probably won't happen. I'll be shocked if it does happen. <clears throat> These things take time. Did it take time to get into the mess you're in? It will take time to get out. Every habit you develop and every sin you practice that takes time to get you into trouble, it will take time for you to dig yourself out of that, that mire or that bog. Don't expect results overnight. You work hard and keep your fig tree and I guarantee you'll eat the fruit of that fig tree. But it may not be December. It may not be December of 87. But it's coming. If you're diligent, I guarantee you that you'll not stand with mean men. You will stand with the kings of this earth, the higher influential people in authority. I guarantee it on the authority of the Word of God but it may not happen in 87. Does that mean God's law is not true? Or does that mean He's going to make sure you're being diligent? Listen, diligence for a week is easy, isn't it? It's a lot easier than a year. You need to be diligent the rest of your lives. And if you're diligent for the rest of your lives, every promise we've covered, and they are glorious, aren't they?
You want to be successful? We've read them. You will be if you put those things into practice. Not always in just the way you think. Remember I said this morning, God hasn't guaranteed success to your plans for your life. Necessarily just the way you have drawn them out. But let me tell you, if he has one better than what you drew out, you'll want it. I'm thankful for the one he wanted for me. If you are in bad condition financially, extraordinary measures are going to be necessary in the next few months. Some of you are in better shape financially than others. Those of you who are not, who are way behind the targets that I have recommended, suggested, set out for you to consider, and God's goals, which are not recommendations, but requirements, if you're behind, it's going to take some extraordinary measures for a time to get caught up. Remember, nothing good in life comes easily. If it comes easily, it's not worth having. The good things in life worth having come with travail in this world. Why? Because it's a sin-cursed world. And every good thing we enjoy comes hard, except salvation. That's by the grace of Christ. And did it come easy? Depends on whose perspective you're looking at it from. Jesus Christ didn't say that it came easy. He gave everything He had to earn your redemption. But the good things you have in life come hard. This is especially true if you've already got yourself behind. If you are severely behind financially, you've got to do two things. This is complex. You've got to do two things. You've got to increase income or you've got to reduce expenses. Now, see, you can go to Harvard and get an MBA and get 60 credit hours of garbage. I was sent to graduate schools of banking at the University of Oklahoma. It was a week's vacation, a lot of dozing. You won't learn a thing. You want to get ahead financially, you've got to do two things. You reduce expenses or you increase income. What's the easiest to do? Reduce expenses. It's more difficult to increase your income. Expenses that can be reduced are housing. If you're overextended in housing, why don't you be as humble as your pastor once had to be with egg all over his face, moving out of a colonial at the age of 22 in the richest city in America with a population over 50,000, Livonia, Michigan, and moving back into a townhouse where he didn't have enough room to do anything practically. But he was happy. And he was meeting his financial goals. And he lost over $10,000 in the wonderful transaction due to his great financial wisdom. Oh, yeah, it was great. 22 years old, own a home in Livonia, nice colonial, entertain people, and start my hornet with a pair of channel locks. House poor. What do you do? You say, well, I'm going to try to dig myself out of this hole. I think the hole would have covered and buried Jonathan Crosby before he could have dug himself out of that mess. He said, I cut my losses now. I take them. I look that number in the face. And I say, thank you, God, for telling me now and making it real enough that I'm going to get out of here, get it behind me, and we'll live on half our income, which we did for a while. And you can quickly get back if you save significantly. You may have to do that. I've done it. You may be driving a car that's too extravagant. Sell it and get a more economical car. Do I have to give a personal example for everything? Yes, I've driven a Fleetwood Brougham. Yes, I've sold it. 
I'm get, listen, why don't you learn from me? Why do you have to go through the humiliating experience of doing some stupid things yourself? Learn what God has said and learn from what your pastor is telling you. I've talked to several of you and eating out is one of the big sea anchors that gets many of you and pulls you beneath the waves of financial success. The convenience of eating out. It is wonderful, isn't it? Especially you women. It's great not to do any dishes, have someone else waiting on you. But let me tell you, there's nothing more that you pay a higher price for than eating out. I'm not condemning eating out under all circumstances, but just remember, it's one of the most expensive luxuries that you use. And it is you being bombarded with eating out. Just drive down any road in Greenville and look at all the eating institutions. You, get, you go home tonight and sit down with a piece of paper and you write home to your mother. And ask her when she was your when she was the age of you, if you're the wife, or write your father, if you're a man, and ask them how many times a month they went out to eat when they were your age. You'll say, well, they were just an ignorant generation that didn't have the golden arches down the street like I do. They also got ahead, and I'll bet, nine times out of ten, they're in far better financial shape than most of the families here. See, we assume that these luxuries are our right. Do you know why? Because they market it that way. They have all the kiddies demanding that we go get, you know, what is it, the kid package at McDonald's so they can get a little cardboard box around their burger and pay 50 cents more for it. The whole world is out to get you to throw away your money one way or another. Write your parents. I know how often mine went out when they were my age because I was a son. Less than once a year did I ever get to eat out. We couldn't afford to. The only way we could afford to eat is to eat at home. How do you increase your income? You can increase your income by asking for more hours. You walk into your boss and say, I want to work some more hours around here and I'll work as hard as I can. I want to help this company and help you. I want to get you promoted in the next six months. Let me tell you, have a cold rag and some smelling salts when you do it. You'll need it and he'll need it. Do it sometime. Try waiting on your master that way if you're not already working enough hours. You can work more hours. You can work another job. And if you're still not getting ahead, work a third job. And if that doesn't do it, work a fourth job. You say, well, that sounds like a prison camp. If you are behind financially, your life better look close to a prison camp until you get caught, it, caught up and you start progressing towards your goals. <coughs> I was talking to Sister Jean Carter just this week, describing her dad working a full-time job and then working a part-time job while she was growing up. Her dad worked two jobs to provide for her family. My wife's father worked three jobs to provide for his family. He came from the hills of Virginia in a coal mining town and grew up with absolutely nothing. He borrowed $50 one day to drive to Detroit to find a job. He was going to leave the coal mining industry, which is a dead-end street of black lung. He borrowed 50 bucks, made it to Detroit, got a job working for a company that eventually became part of Chrysler Corporation and worked two jobs on the side. I mean, the man now is 55 years old, which is young on 40 acres in Alabama, retired and working for the sheer pleasure, raising cattle. 
a childhood fantasy. He's working hard at it, though, by hand. Raising cattle down in Alabama. He worked three jobs to do that. You say, well, if you work three jobs, you're neglecting your family. You don't know how to take care of your family if you can't work 12 hours a day and still spend quality hours with your family. Where in the Word of God does it say that fathers need to sit down for six hours a day and do homework and play tiddlywinks with their children? Listen, if you men would spend 15 minutes of quality time with each one of your children, I'd call it a modern-day miracle. Don't talk to me about a job taking you away from your kids. It's all those other things you have when you get home, and it's not the job. I am smart enough to know that. How am I smart? I have four children. You can work your wife. You can work more hours. You can work another job. You can work a third job, and you can work your wife. And I know the women are screaming inside, but I am working. I am working. I'm working at home. I have taught on this before. There's a fine line to draw. There's a line. The woman is to be the keeper at home, but if she can keep her home, if the kids are grown partially, or if they're in school, there is no reason why she can't work a couple hours a day to help her husband and her family get ahead. That is why she's here. The virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 did just exactly that. She worked to help her family get ahead and provide for their needs, and she did it outside of the home, and she did it very well, keeping in mind that her primary duty is a keeper at home. We live in an age when women have labor-saving devices that we cannot even number. If we were to sit here for a half an hour, we couldn't think up all the advantages that women today have over women of two generations ago. Your life is a dream compared to the women who had to go out with a scrub board, do clothes, bake their own bread, milk the cows, and make the butter to put on the bread that they turned into toast over a stove that had a wood fire in it that she kindled at 5 a.m. in the morning and then sewed the clothes for the family, washed the clothes for the family, she did everything. If you forgot what it was like, go back and read a couple books on pioneer life. That doesn't mean that every woman needs to be spending 72 hours down at the office a week. But if you're in dire financial straits, and by dire financial straits, I mean you've got $4,000 in the bank maybe, or $2,000 in the bank, but you're not anywhere near the goals, and you're not saving 10% a month. Just weigh everything carefully on what you ought to do. What I'm saying is that if you're behind, it takes extraordinary measures to get caught up. If we were to train our children in the way they should go, and doesn't Proverbs teach us that? If we're to train our children the way they should go, we better not neglect financial training for our children. We better start now on training them how to manage money. Children should never be given an allowance. Children should never be given an allowance. That's vanity. That's a free lunch. Why are you doing that, parents, if you give your child an allowance? Make them work for their money. I don't care if it's so simple that you've got a three-year-old. Give them some projects to do. 
I had them. I don't want any other children getting away without doing it. My mother had a chart on the side of the refrigerator from the earliest as I can remember. I got paid a penny a job. Have I told you all this? Okay, I've told you. I got paid a penny a job. I mean, I'd get the old vacuum cleaner out. She'd probably have to do it after me anyway. But I'd be right pushing that thing around the living room and I'd get a penny for it. My dad paid me the most lucrative job. Did I tell you about that? He gave me the little tool to pick dandelions out of the yard. And I went out in the yard and would pop dandelions. It was a little tool that went down in the ground. He invented it himself that would pop the root out so that the dandelion wouldn't come back. I earned my way to summer camp that way. $15. Do you know how many dandelions make $15 at a penny apiece? A lot of dandelions. $1,500. I thank my dad for what he did to force me to learn how to work. He didn't give me anything. When I, bought my, when I foolishly bought that car that I owned, he kept track of every dime, every cent. And I've told you about that. And he had that ledger. Whenever I walked in with my paycheck, fork it over to Dad, and he'd write a few more bucks off that list. Every cent. Yes, I had the finest car in the area, the fastest motorcycle, but I paid for every penny of it, and it made me appreciate it a little more. Don't give your children an allowance. Make them earn everything they get. And after they've earned it, you've given them something. Teach them about earning money, about giving some of that money back to the Lord because He gives us everything we have. Teach them about saving. Teach them about a bank. My children are fascinated when I take them to the bank and they get to walk in there with their own passbook and walk up to the important lady at the teller's window and make a deposit. Explain to them about interest and the time value of money, and that while they're sleeping, as I've already told you, their money's working for them, to inculcate in them the desire to preserve and to save and to let that money earn more money for them so that when they get to be our age, they won't be in the same shape that many of us have been in. My father taught me to do that. I had a job at an early age. Every young man in here and young woman should have a job either at home or outside as early as they are capable, and the law will allow them. And if you can find one that's borderline, go get it. You need to work. God's put us, God has put us here in this world to work. Deliver newspapers, cut yards, do odd jobs around the house. Our young people can do that as they grow up and earn their money and save it. I thank God for the savings I had. Listen, when I was starting my hornet with a wrench, a pair of channel locks, when I lived in our first apartment and would break down to have a bowl of fruit cocktail with my wife, I had thousands in the bank. But I would not use them because they were prior earnings. It was not my right to use them then. But where did that money come from? It came from my father kicking me out of the sack at 6 o'clock on Sunday mornings in January in Michigan when it's raining, sleet, and it's zero to go deliver newspapers when I was Twelve years old. Thank you, Dad. Some of you started earlier than I did. I commend you. Those of you who did, you're usually better off than those who didn't. We need to help our children learn how to work. And we can do that now, no matter what. It, if they can understand you speaking to them at all, you can give them little jobs and pay them little bits of money. Once a week, have them sit down, sort the money out, give some to the Lord, 
put some in the bank, and go from there. And they'll learn the lesson that we all need to learn. Begin to maintain a family financial notebook. Every family ought to have a financial notebook or a financial disk on their computer, whatever turns you on, but some place where you keep track of where you stand financially. The husband and wife both should know everything that you own, everything that you owe, and everything that you're making. I want our women in this church to be a little bit independent when the men die. I don't want a man to die in this congregation, a woman not to know what they own, what they owe, or how much he's been making, or what kind of insurance they have. If you have a family financial notebook, you can even include your kids sometimes, your children, record your expenses every penny you spend on a daily basis. I will be glad to show you exactly what I'm talking about for those that are interested. Some of you are supposed to be doing what I'm talking about because I've given you notebooks and set them up for you. Record your expenses on a daily basis so that at the end of the month you have everything you spent. Categorize that by main category and you'll have an income statement. Do you know how valuable that piece of paper is to understand where your family is going? If every mo- at the end of the month you have a piece of paper that at the top shows all your income, everything that came in, and then about 10 or 15 categories below that, food, groceries, food, eating out, rent, utilities, entertainment, automobile gasoline, automobile repairs, education, the church, savings. If every month you can look at something like that, it will do miracles for you if you'll pay attention to it and see what it's trying to teach you. I mean, if it's negative at the bottom, it has a lot of lessons to teach you. And then at the same time, while you have that income statement, I mean, treat yourself like a business. The company you work for has such a thing. You ought to. Or don't you care about yourselves? Have that income statement and then also have a balance sheet where you list your assets and your liabilities every month and they should be changing. Cash in the bank. Cash in the checking account. Cash in my wallet. My savings account. The certificate of deposit I own. The piece of property I own. Then your liabilities. The visa card. The Belks card. Whatever other card it may be. List them all. Do you know how valuable that will be when you die for your wife to have? Do you know how valuable that is on a week, on a monthly basis to see your progress? Because hopefully, every month, the liabilities are going down, the assets are going up. And you need to sit back once a month and look at it and say, I am making progress. If you don't see progress being made, your job will become a burden that will destroy you. Use a budget. Use a budget if you think you need it to help you allocate your expenses so that you can give and save the way you ought to. I don't really think you have to have a budget if you'll do this. If you'll covenant with the Lord for a percentage and pay that off the top of your check and covenant with yourself for a percentage and pay that second off your check, I don't think you need anything. You know why? Because they're both going to get done and you'll live on the rest. Establish goals and learn to be goal-oriented. Every family ought to have goals. He who aims at nothing hits nothing. If you're going to hit anything financially in your life, you need to set yourself some goals. A year from now, some, several of you families have something for December 31. That goal is keeping you motivated, isn't it? You want to achieve it. You've told me about it. I want you to achieve it. I will remind you to achieve it. 
And I'll commend you when you do it, and you know that. Set some goals, though. If you don't aim at anything, you're not going to hit anything. Don't set your goals too high. It'll frustrate you so much, you'll quit. That's a problem I've always had. Setting goals too high, you can't meet them, so you give up altogether. Don't do that. Set your goals reasonably. I've tried to give you some reasonable ones. And live within those goals. Let others know about your goals so they can prod you. Don't keep your goals secret. They're worth nothing. Almost nothing. Let a few others know. You don't, it doesn't have to be me. I'm willing to be a burr under your saddle. Most willing. But if you want someone else to be that burr, then tell them. But let them know your goals so they can help encourage you. Avoid the influence of those that are covetous and rich and foolish in this world. Evil communications corrupt good manners. If we let our children hang around with spendthrifts or with those who've acquired some money through vanity, guess what we're going to have ten years from now? We're going to have some out of the same mold. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Watch who your children company with and make sure that your friends outside of this congregation are those that are wise in this world. And there are some that are out there. Jesus said the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. Some of those friends will do you good to have. Remember the simplicity of wisdom. This hasn't been a complex lesson that I've given you the last 11 sermons. This is simple. The gospel is simple. God's requirements are simple. The difficult part is simply doing them because you have a heart and a body that refuses to do what God has asked it to do even though it is simple. Remember the importance of basics. I haven't given you anything complicated. When you have enough money in the bank, we can talk about getting complicated. I can tell you about some complicated financial transactions that will stimulate your imagination. Those aren't necessary. Right now it's working hard, working smart, and saving money and giving to the Lord. We all can do it. But it's going to take some work. And like William Johnson said so well a couple of weeks ago, tomorrow is not the time to get started. January 1st isn't the time to get started on every one of these points, although it may be on the financial notebook you're going to keep or on a budget. Listen, we need to start now. Some of you have already started. You've made a good start. Let's continue. The Lord is calling on you to sanctify yourselves financially. You can call yourself a Christian. You cannot commit fornication. You can avoid defrauding your brethren and you can love everyone in here. But if you do not provide for your own and meet God's financial objectives, you are worse than an infidel. May the Lord Jesus Christ bless the preaching of His Word to the sanctification of this congregation and glorious, righteous, fruitful, prosperous days ahead for all of us. May Jesus Christ be praised.